Friends, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 17. This morning we're going to look at verses 18 to 25. In 1 to 17 we encountered a list of names, the genealogy of Jesus. And we were reminded as we looked at this that this was not ultimately just a list of names, but was actually a sermon. And the way that Matthew structures this genealogy, we are reminded of the depth and the width of God's mercy. We learn the gospel even in its outlines in the genealogy of Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at a familiar passage. Uh, I suspect that if you've spent time in the church or if you grew up in the church, even if you were only in the church at Christmas time, this is probably a story you've heard. And so one of the things we're going to hope for, one of the things we're going to strive for is to come to this passage with fresh eyes and fresh ears to see what the Lord might have for us this morning. So this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is God's word for you. For us this morning. Listen to this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. And we're just going to jump right in. Verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel tell us that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. And betrothal is not like being engaged. It's hard for us because we don't have these categories as much anymore. But betrothal was actually a legal status in the ancient world. There were promises that you made to one another in betrothal. There were obligations. There was a contract That had been signed by both parties. Joseph had likely already paid a portion of the bride price to Mary's parents. That's money that the groom would pay to the parents of the bride uh, for the privilege of marrying their daughter. They have this legal status here. And so the way it would work is you would sign this contract, you would enter this period of betrothal for about a year, and at the end of that period, they would have what they called a home-taking, 
where the husband and wife or the bride and the groom would, for the first time, begin to live together as husband and wife. They would live together uh, because they lived separately during the betrothal. So in verses 18 and 19, when Matthew tells us that before they have come together, Mary was found to be pregnant, what that means is during the period of their betrothal, before they were living together as husband and wife, Mary was found to be pregnant. And friends, this would have been humiliating to Joseph. This is humiliating to him. Nazareth at this time, according to the best records we have, is probably... 200 to 400 people. This was not a secret. This was not something that could be hidden away. Joseph in the town where he lives is humiliated. Mary is obviously, according to everyone and probably according to Joseph as well, Mary is obviously guilty of adultery. Because betrothal was a legal status, to commit adultery in the midst of that was a punishable offense under God's law. And Joseph had a right to put Mary to open shame. He had a right to publicly expose her for the sinner she clearly was and had been. But, the text tells us, Joseph was a just man. And in the Greek, just is the same word that can also be translated righteous. Joseph is a righteous man, and he is unwilling to put Mary to this open shame, to this public shame, and so he decides instead to divorce her quietly and just go their separate ways. So he's going to, she's already broken the contract, he's just going to null and void the contract, they're going to go their separate ways, he's not going to put her to shame. Last week, we looked at how the gospel in some ways begins in scandal, particularly looking at the four Gentile women with sort of scandalous affiliations in the genealogy of Matthew. And what I want you to see is that the scandal of the gospel continues here in verses 18 to 25. You see, friends, we live in a world, we live in a culture that delights to publicly shame people. That's one of the things we do best as a culture. We love the public takedown. We love to purge the evildoers from our midst. Here's an example of that. In 2014, a woman named Justine Sacco was boarding a transatlantic flight. And she put a joke on social media. And it was tasteless. It was offensive. It was stupid. And she put it up there, turned off her phone, and boarded her plane. What she did not know was that while she was airborne across the Atlantic Ocean, her post went viral. Her post spread throughout the social media infrastructure. Uh, People were uh, asking her employer if her employer endorsed her joke. Uh, They did not, so they publicly announced while she was in the air that she had been fired. Uh, She was worldwide a trending topic on Twitter, uh, which means she was one of the like 10 most talked about things on the internet at that moment. She had about 60 followers on Twitter at that point, so this is really astounding how widespread this went. She landed at the conclusion of her flight and turned on her phone to find 
She's lost her job. Her company that she loved had disavowed her. And all of her friends were distancing themselves from her. This story and several others like it were relayed in a book by a journalist named John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Friends, this is just the air we breathe in our culture, in our society. This is the atmosphere of social media. This is even the way now that our news cycles work. Public shame is where we are as a culture. I want to contrast that with the way Joseph responds to the news of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph has a right to be publicly vindicated for Mary's sin. He has been humiliated by her. He has a right to put her to open shame, but Joseph is a righteous man. And a righteous man is a man whose heart has been shaped by God's mercy and God's grace. So though he was humiliated, Joseph chooses instead not to put Mary to shame, but to absorb the cost to his reputation. He he chooses to just absorb the cost of the humiliation he has experienced and divorce Mary quietly. Friends, what I want to suggest is that a righteousness like this will change your marriage. A righteousness like this will change your parenting. It will change your friendships. It will change the way you drive on I-66. If you are willing to absorb the cost of the indignities you suffer at the hands of other drivers, you are getting close to the heart of what Joseph is doing here. His heart is shaped by God's mercy and grace. He is a model for us of God's mercy and grace. Here in these first two verses, even his decision to divorce Mary quietly is a picture of his goodness, of of God's grace to us. But the story continues. And in verses 20 to 23, Joseph considers Divorce. He is considering these things, it says, when he is visited by an angel in a dream. And the angel says to Joseph, hey Joseph, Mary has not been unfaithful. Don't be scared to take her as your wife. The child that she bears is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son and you are going to name that son Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Matthew notes that this fulfills this promise made all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, which Kevin read to us earlier in the service, that the virgin would bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And so in these passages, in in these verses here, we actually see two names of Jesus. And I want to briefly think about what each one tells us about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. The name Jesus is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And the angel says to Joseph, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now we hear that and we don't bat an eye because we've read this passage dozens and dozens of times. You've heard this passage preached before. 
So when you hear Jesus will save people from sins, you think, of course he will. That's what Jesus does. But understand this. In the first century, Jews wanted deliverance not necessarily from their own sins, but from their enemies. They wanted to be delivered from Rome that was occupying Israel. They wanted to be delivered from the sins of others. Friends, it is so tempting for us to think that the biggest problems in our lives are other people. That the sin of other people is the biggest issue we face. And sometimes you'll hear a sermon and you'll think, man, I wish blank could have heard that sermon. As if the Lord is giving you the responsibility of being convicted for the sin of other people. But what Matthew is reminding us here, just like he's reminding Joseph, just like he is reminding the Israelites in the first century, their chief need is not to be delivered from the sins of others, but to be delivered from their own sins. And friends, that's what Jesus will do. And what's amazing is there's even a deeper hint here in the way that the angel says this to Matthew. Because he says, you will call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. There's an amazing promise just in that very sentence Because this is a claim of nothing less than the fact that the child Mary is carrying is God himself. You will call his name Yahweh saves for he will save his people from their sins. And if that's not explicit enough, Matthew brings in this promise in Isaiah chapter 7. That this fulfills the promise, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Friends, what this means is in Jesus, God is with us. Not in some generic way, not in some way that just gives us goosebumps to say that God is with us, but in Jesus, God is with us because Jesus is God. And what this means is that we don't have a God who sends help to us. We have a God who comes to be with us. And he has done that in Jesus. So verses 24 and 25 tell us that this child, Jesus, also called Emmanuel, that Joseph wakes up and he obeys. He does everything that God has commanded him. It says, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. One of the commentators I was reading this past week notes that Joseph never speaks in the New Testament. You ever notice that? This is a pretty important character. He has zero dialogue. In some ways, the speech of Joseph is his obedience, what he does, his response to the commands of God. And Joseph here obeys. He does what the angel has commanded him. He takes Mary as his wife. He names his adopted son Jesus. And it's amazing to think about the fact that the lineage of Jesus as the Messiah is traced through Joseph. 
that the adoption of Jesus is treated as real as any other kind of fatherhood. Jesus is the Messiah in part because he has been adopted by Joseph. And he was named by both of his fathers, his heavenly father and his earthly father. I was thinking about Joseph this week. Joseph is just a fascinating character who is there for like three chapters and then just disappears. We don't hear anything else about Joseph. We only see basically two occasions upon which his obedience is directly tied to God's work in the gospel. But I was thinking this week about the difficulty of the obedience to which Joseph was being called. You see, I was thinking, we, we see that Joseph obeys and he marries Mary and he adopts Jesus as his son. He names him what the angel has commanded. And we just kind of think, oh, then everything was fine. But I was realizing Joseph's obedience didn't change the social reality of Nazareth in the first century. This was still a gossipy town of two to four hundred people. And while the text doesn't give us much, and I don't want to speculate wildly here, what I'm assuming is that people still talked and gossiped about Joseph and Mary and Jesus. People still pointed and maybe even snickered behind the back of Joseph. You know, Joseph at the beginning of the story is just a guy who wants to get married, like just have a family, just kind of be a normal guy. He didn't ask for this complication. He didn't ask to get swept up into this grand drama of the gospel. And I was thinking about myself, and I was thinking how many times I think to myself, man, I just wish something would be simple and easy. Do you ever feel that way? Like just one thing. Like just one day, I wish it would be simple and easy. I think Joseph probably felt the same way uh, in this passage. And friends, I think that we're tempted sometimes to think that if we are obedient or that if we are following God's will, that that's going to bring sort of simplicity and ease and comfort and control to our lives. That if we're doing the right things, then things should in general go well for us. But I think this passage, and I think even the rest of the New Testament, would tell us that our expectations on that front need to be adjusted. You see, friends, the gospel never promises us that obedience will lead to simplicity and ease and comfort and control. In fact, the gospel promises us the exact opposite of that. Gospel obedience is costly. And it leads us into difficulty, it leads us into hardship, it leads us into complexity, it leads us into suffering because it leads us into sin and brokenness. And so I want to encourage you. I think sometimes we look at our lives and we think that the hardship and the suffering we are experiencing is either the result of some sin that we need to figure out so we can stop doing it so that things will get better, or we think that maybe God is trying to teach us some lesson, and if we can just learn it, then things will get easier. And I want to encourage you with the fact that that is not true. 
The gospel tells us, and Joseph illustrates in this passage, that obedience to God is always costly. And that's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, the shape of discipleship looks like picking up a cross and following him. Picking up an implement of death and walking after Jesus is the shape of our discipleship. The great pastor and German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer captures it memorably when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Obedience is always costly. But friends, embedded even in that idea is encouragement. And the encouragement is simply this. Your suffering in this life, the hardship you experience through your obedience is not meaningless. Your suffering is not meaningless. The founder of your salvation, Jesus himself, was made perfect through suffering. You see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that God is at work in our suffering and that these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory to unbelievable to even imagine. Your suffering is not meaningless, nor is your suffering invisible. Your suffering is not unnoticed by God. Because the Bible tells us again and again that God sees your hardship. God sees the suffering you endure as you seek to follow him faithfully. I've talked to many of you in the last several weeks, and I've heard some of the things you are enduring, and I want to say to you, God sees your sleepless nights. God sees the nights where you are up caring for children or for elderly parents. God sees the suffering you experience as you endure indignities and scorn from the world for trying to walk in faithfulness. God sees those things. They are not unnoticed, even if no one else around you sees them. In Psalm 56, verse 8, uh, which is what the call to worship this morning was, uh, it's a beautiful passage where God, or where the psalmist tells us that God keeps count of our tossings. He bottles our tears and he writes them in his book. Friends, in Christ, your suffering is not meaningless and it's not unnoticed. But the thing that struck me most as I read this passage this week and thought about Joseph is that Joseph is in many ways the first picture of the gospel that we get in Matthew's gospel. In Joseph, we have a just and a righteous father who adopts a child at great cost to himself. And in adopting Jesus, Joseph chooses to absorb shame. And he lays down his life, he lays down his reputation in costly obedience to what God is calling him to do. And it's amazing for me to think about the fact that the Gospel of Luke explicitly tells us that Jesus learns. And I wonder in some ways if Jesus learned from Joseph what the shape of his work on earth would be. 
of what he would do for his people, especially on the cross, where Jesus absorbs shame and endures scorn and lays down his life in costly obedience that we sinners could become beloved children of the Heavenly Father. Friends, Jesus, I want you to see, grows up to be just like his dad. It's like Proverbs puts it. If you train up a child in the way they should go, even when they are old, they won't depart from it. Friends, it's good news. Joseph's obedience is good news because it shapes in part the Jesus who redeems us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have this picture of the gospel before the gospel. That in Joseph's obedience, you remind us that obedience is always costly, but that the hardship we experience for our obedience is not meaningless or unnoticed, but you're at work in it. You are with us through it. You are at work in our suffering, preparing us for glory. Father, we thank you that Joseph was faithful and that his son ultimately does what he did on an even grander scale. That when he went to the cross, he absorbed the shame of our sin and endured suffering so that we sinners who were far from you might become your beloved children. Father, remind us and anchor us in that truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.